Well, good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like you to find the second book and the fourth chapter. Genesis is the first book. Exodus is the second book. So if you'd be so kind as to find the book of Exodus with me this morning, and I'd like to draw your attention to the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus. And I want to preach to you this morning about putting your yes on the table. We love to hear the word yes sometimes. Think about some big yeses in your life. You may remember back to your teenage years and or perhaps early college and some people in your life, perhaps your parents, helped you acquire that first vehicle. Maybe you worked and paid for it and your dad co-signed the loan. Maybe you had to provide the insurance for it and, and, and your parents provided it. Maybe they just surprised you with a car with a big old bow on top of it. I got a hand-me-down. You could see through the floorboard, have three on the tree. When you filled up the gas tank, you doubled the value of the vehicle. But it doesn't matter how you acquire your first vehicle. When you look and say, is this for me? And they say, yes, you always remember that. Now, men, if you have the privilege of having the title of husband this morning, there was a moment where you ask a question. You probably had a good indication to how the answer would go, or you would not have had enough courage to even ask. But you did ask, will you marry me? And she said, yes. I'll always remember when Laurel asked me to marry her. (laughs) (laughs) And then perhaps a few years later in your life, some of you are living it right now. I saw you coming in with those little ones. Uh, There's some uneasiness, some sickness, some things are messed up with the calendar. We'll leave it at that. And then he says, are you, are you pregnant? And she says, yes. And then once you have those children, you do nothing but say no for 18 years. <laughs> but even in raising children, there are those moments where Did you make a good grade on your test? And they're so excited to say yes. And then later on, did you get accepted into that school that you want? Yes. Honey, did you get the job you applied for? Yes. I mean, there are some hard yeses in this life that we never want to hear yes to. But by and large, when we are around people who get us to yes, we like their company. And I always enjoy working and doing ministry with people that when two ideas come together or a conflict happens or there is a difference of opinion or perception or preference and perhaps we have to choose what we do. I like to be with people who come to the table wanting to say yes. And that's where that term comes from. The idea of putting your yes on the table is used as a figure of speech To describe someone who comes to a situation and says, I'm all in. No matter what you ask me to do, before you ask, the answer is 
yes. Now, of course, we know there are boundaries and limits to this. I would never encourage anyone to say yes to anything that disobeys or dishonors the Lord or does not show love to our brothers and sisters in the faith or our neighbors outside the faith. But when it comes to hard things and difficult things, I love men and women who will come to a situation and say, hey, no matter what you need, no matter what is asked, I'll do everything I can to get to yes, to put your yes on the table. Now, when you drop that into a spiritual conversation, many pastors have challenged many congregations to view their walk with the Lord that way. The good thing about the Lord is that we know, unlike you and I, he will never ask us or call us to do anything against his will. He will ask us and call us to do hard things, but we don't ever have to worry about the Lord leading us into sin. The Bible says very clearly that the Lord has no part in leading us into sin, and the Lord will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we can resist. And the Lord always longs for those who he loves to bring glory and honor to him. So we can say with bold confidence, Lord, I want to put my yes on the table. But it is really easy to say. It's a whole nother thing to do. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses has received a call from God. We talked about it last week. If you are a guest of ours or you're watching online for the first time or perhaps you're listening to this message post the day it's preached in a podcast or on some format, we're walking through the book of Exodus chapter by chapter in this first series called God Sent a Man. And I've been reminding you that this story of epic redemption from God's people out of the cruel chains of Egyptian slavery into a journey toward the promised land matters to us for several reasons. We will always review these. It matters because we are the people of God. So when we watch the people of God wrestling with the will of God and dealing with obeying God in Scripture, it informs us about our identity. Secondly, we live in the same world Moses lived in. I realize much has changed since antiquity, but I'll tell you what has not changed. God is still good, and sin and brokenness still reign in this world. We still live in a broken, fallen, hard world, and God is still moving and working within that world toward his redemptive plan. We serve the same God that calls Moses. As I walk you through Exodus 4 this morning and as we see this dialogue between God and Moses, Moses is dead. He is with the Lord today. But God, the God of Moses, who spoke to Moses and called Moses, is the one you prayed to and sang to just a few moments ago. So by default, it benefits us to see and look deeply into how he interacted with these patriarchs of the faith. Their story is our scripture. God preserved this story through Moses living it and then writing it down later in his life so that we could have it. And finally, we are to love their Savior. Uh, the Lord Jesus is alive and well in the book of Exodus, as I will show you even today. So watching God redeem through Christ causes us to fall more in love with the one that we are to fall more in love with every single day. I'll call this sermon simply saying yes. How do you say yes to God even when it's hard? 
So you know the story of Exodus 3. I told it to you in great detail last week. Moses is old. He's 80 years old. And he's serving his father-in-law in exile. 40 years have passed since he fled Egypt, having lost his people and his position as the prince. He's now a shepherd. Don't miss the metaphor of that. God called a shepherd to save his people. He'll do it again later when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And God appears to Moses in the burning bush, Exodus 3, and a dialogue ensues where God lays out the call. Now, I would love to tell you that the moment this call is issued, Moses standing there barefoot, because God has said, take off your sandals for you are on holy ground, and says, Lord, and he breaks out into song, wherever you lead, I'll go. I would love to preach that. Man, that'd be good. That is not what happened. In fact, one of the reasons I love the Bible you're holding in your hand, if you bought a printed copy as I prefer, or you're looking at on the app of your device, one of the reasons I love your Bible is that everybody in your Bible except one tremendous Savior is deeply broken and flawed and full of weaknesses. So nobody at church today Nobody listening online gets to look at your bumps and bruises, your failures and your defeats, and use that as a means to disqualify you from serving the Lord. I mean, God has appeared in a burning bush and then given him an audible voice. He even named himself, Moses, I am who I am. And he gets this call. And Moses cannot get to yes initially. If I were going to divide this chapter up, it it falls into three divisions. First is the struggle Moses has of saying yes to God's call. Read with me in Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Moses answered. So chapter 3 ends with God saying, this is what you're going to do, and this is what I'm going to do, and this is what's going to happen. So God gives him this beautiful picture of the redemption. God tells him the end of the story. We don't always get that. God can call you and not tell you the destination. He did that in Abraham's life. But God said to Moses, Moses, you're going to go back and I'm going to use you and I'm going to deliver my people. And when they leave at the end of chapter 3, you'll see at the last few verses of chapter 3, for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing you shall put on their sons and their daughters so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So God says, Moses... I'm going to ask you to do something hard, but you're going to win. And this is where Moses says, but behold, verse 1, chapter 4, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. If you were going to categorize Moses' struggles, the first one is around believability. Basically, Moses says, God, I believe you. I'm standing here looking at a burning bush. I've heard your voice. I'm interacting with you. I am not crazy. This is not a hallucination. This is not some just mirage. This isn't a vision. This is a real live example. I believe you. But that doesn't mean they're going to believe you. And then a discussion ensues where God says, 
Moses, I'm, I'm going to give you signs. Now, the interesting thing about signs is that signs take on both a negative and a positive view in and around faith. There's a moment in Jesus' life where people are asking for miracles, and he says in John 4:48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This is not a positive statement in the context. Moses, Jesus is saying, you all want signs and wonders, and here I am, the Son of God, standing in front of you. But the same Bible that presents that type of cynicism towards signs also realizes that we need to see divine activity, supernatural activity, in order to believe the claims of Christ. At the end of the book of John, this is what John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written. So John says, this is why I wrote them down. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I was putting the date on something the other day, and you know how you put the number, eight. I mean, we're already eight months in to 2023. You're going to sneeze, and it's Halloween, blink, and it's Thanksgiving, yawn, and it's Christmas. It goes faster and faster and faster. But along about February of next year, our church will be gearing up to the springtime, and the greatest moment in the spring for a Christian is opening day of turkey. No, I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry. sorry. The greatest moment in the spring for a Christian is Easter. Why Easter? I'll tell you why. Because everything we preach and teach hinges on the miracle of the resurrection. And every preacher worth his salt says that every Easter. Empty tomb, living church. Tomb with a body in it, dead church. This is what sets apart Christianity from all other faith. Our founder lives. He vacated the tomb. And not just few, hundreds of people gave the rest of their lives even unto death after seeing the risen Lord. The empirical evidence for the resurrection is one of the greatest testimonies of God providing validity to his divinity. If Jesus had done all the signs and wonders you could list but did not rise from the dead, he would go down in history as an ancient figure who seemed to display divine powers. But rising from the dead affirms his deity. So God does. God does at times provide supernatural evidence for the children of God to point to, to say, our God is real. You can him. And ultimately, Moses is given two, or rather three signs. Look what the Bible says in verse 2. The Lord has said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. I don't know if the Lord likes watching people jump. And Moses ran from it. Now, the interesting thing is there's no indication that it was a poisonous serpent. The vast majority of snakes are not venomous. Knowing the difference matters. Some of you like all snakes as long as they're dead snakes. But, but, but. We tend to flee from that which is poisonous, but it takes a moment to determine if something's poisonous. Unless it's rattling, you have to look at it. And so, almost all of us step back from a snake. 
I have almost stepped on many, many, many snakes in my years of being in the woods. And I never go, well, my goodness, hey, buddy, and reach out. I do that to puppies and toddlers. And sometimes toddlers bite. <laughs> puppies are cleaner than toddlers. But for snakes, the first thing I want to do is identify what he is. So I'm going to create some distance until I know. Well, Moses' staff turns into a snake. Now, look what the Bible says to Moses. Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. That immediately eliminates half of you from serving God in this moment. <laughs> You're like, you know what, man, I'm all about Jesus. I ain't touching no snake. This is what the Scripture says. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff again that they may believe that the Lord, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Second sign, verse 6. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside of your cloak. And, put, and he put his hand inside the cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. This is not good. This is bad. The Bible is full of laws and ceremonies about keeping one's skin clean. It is the largest organ on your body, your skin. And so the scripture says his hand was immediately leprous. leprous. Leprosy is not just very, very dangerous in the ancient world. It's contagious as well. So that which is the hand will not stay on the hand. And by default, it's not a kneecap. It's not the back of his ear. It's the very organ he uses to touch everything else. So that which was healthy becomes harmful. That which is used for support becomes a serpent. And then the scripture says this. Then God said, verse 7, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside the cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And if they will not believe you, God said, listen to the first sign. They may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and the water shall, you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. And so three signs. One from the staff to the serpent, one from the healthy hand to the harmful hand, one from that which is pure, water from the Nile to that which is putrid. Spilled blood always leads to death. Blood was supposed to be contained in that which is living, not spilled on the ground. It was avoided. For the Hebrews, it will not be able to be touched or you will be declared unclean, as the Mosaic Law will read later in the Old Testament. So, he's given these signs. So, God is really displaying a great deal of grace. M Moses could have been told, don't worry about whether or not they're going to believe you. You go and do what I'm telling you to do. But God ordained that Moses would have supernatural power from God through him. It was not as if Moses possessed this power. This was the Lord working. Well, then Moses comes up with another protest. Moses deals with believability and then brings up his inability. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 10. But Moses said, O Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant." But I am slow to speech and of tongue. 
Now, there's a lot that's been assumed about this passage. I can tell you that most biblical scholars don't believe that this should make us convinced with all certainty that Moses had some form of a speech impediment or that he stuttered. We know there are other examples of Old Testament prophets protesting the same way, saying, Lord, who am I? And I won't have the words to do it. In the ancient world, there's this thing scholars call exaggerated humility, as if saying, I don't really want to do it, so I'm just going to point out to the fact that point out the fact that I am so inadequate you could never ever use me. However, I don't want this to be lost on us. Over the years in pastoring and leading people, I can say that one of the most common protests people offer. And they typically don't offer it in an adversarial way. They're not combative. Rather, they're uh, humble and contrite is, Pastor, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm not sure what I need to say. It can be around evangelism of sharing our faith. The vast majority of people who attend churches like ours go months, sometimes years, without ever sharing the gospel with someone else. The statistics are staggering at the percentage of professing Christians who actually lead another person to Christ. We tend, sadly, to let our leaders do that. That's the Sunday school teacher's job, the youth minister's job, the pastor's job. When we know that that's not true, and when you talk about sharing your faith, Often people will say, Master, I believe, and, and there's nothing that could get me to move away from what Christ has done in my life. And he means so much to me, and I want so badly for my brother-in-law or my sister or my coworker or my neighbor to come to faith. I want that. I've been praying for that. But I just struggle to know what to say. This is one of those moments where I want to be careful not to spiritualize the dialogue, but I see so many people in Moses at this moment. I mean, it's not as if the message is complex. Go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. You don't have to explain anything else. Just say, let my people go. And Moses says, number one, they're not going to believe me. So God says, oh, I'll give them signs. They're going to believe. Number two, I'm not able to do it. And Moses says, and God says to Moses something pretty profound. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? I love that. Hey, Moses, you worried about what to say? Who put your mouth where it is? Who gave you your mouth? Who has made man's mouth? He goes on to say, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? By the way, that's a great proof text for the pro-life movement. We know that disability is a part of a broken world. In fact, all of us have disabilities. Some of you right now have problems with your body, your health. And if you don't, just wait. It's coming. We all are dying. We're born to die. Hate to cheer you up this morning, but that's just the truth. We're all on our way to a grave unless the Lord returns. This is the great hope of the gospel. We don't have to fear it, but the truth is, as we get older, we are reminded of getting older. I hit 40, and I'm like, this is not that bad. I hit 45, oh, oh. And so I'm beginning to feel it, and everybody here older than 45 going, Psh, yeah, you're such a lightweight, just wait. 
But we also know that because we live in a fallen world, people are born with legitimate disabilities. People are born without the ability to hear, without the ability to speak. There are all kinds of neurological disorders. There are people in and among our campus today who the world would quantify and qualify as a person with a disability. I would remind you, it's not a disabled person. The personhood comes first. A person with a disability, a child with a disability, a child with a special need. That's important to that community that you use the language correctly. It matters. But when we see those children, we grow to love them, but we also live in reality. There are some real struggles that they deal with because of their disability. But it does not mean they are a mistake. It does not mean their life has less value. God is not only sovereign over the perfectly healthy children, he's sovereign over every child who is born with terminal illness and sovereign over every child that's born with a life-altering disability. God makes all things for his glory. Look at the text. He says, then the Lord said, who has made man's mouth, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind, is it not I, the Lord? Therefore, go. And then I love what he says. I will be with your mouth. Woo! I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Man, this is good. Don't miss this. God will be with any part of your body when that part of your body is willing to serve the Lord. When you grip a hammer tomorrow on a job site, God can be glorified. When you minister to a family in need through your medical profession, God can be glorified. When you get on your knees and help button up a little shirt of a little fella that is wearing you out, has taken all your sleep, exhausted your bank account, and run the risk of emptying out all your patience, when you mother him with great kindness and craft his little heart, God can be glorified. God will use any part of your life and your body that you bring into his service. God said, I will be with your mouth. And by the way, this is the same Lord who came and dealt with the disciples and said, it will be very hard when they drag you before the courts for preaching me. And do you know what the Lord said to them? It's in the New Testament. I'll put it on the screen. He says in Matthew chapter 10, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Think about that. That the Lord says, if you'll step out on faith and open your mouth to bring glory and honor to me, I will give you the words. I stand behind that curtain every Sunday morning, about 46 of them a year, and I say, Lord, speak through me. And I stand before you a testimony. If you couldn't meet my fourth grade teacher, she would be as shocked as some of you are that I'm up here. A testimony that if you will be willing to speak for the king, he will give you the words. And so, wow, Moses, here's your signs. Moses, I'll bless your speech. And there's the moment where I want Moses to go, okay, God, I got it. Let's go. Fire up my donkey. Let's get down to Egypt. But no, that's not what happens. We then deal with the third struggle. Availability. 
Moses just comes out and says it in verse 13. But he said, oh my Lord, you are such a great and mighty God who has given me these signs and promised to bless my speech. I shall go and defeat Pharaoh. No, if you got your Bible open, that's not what he said. He said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. That's literally what the text says. Can you send somebody else? Like, I'm good. I'm good. I got my wife, got my father-in-law's sheep. I'm familiar with the country. I'd rather be in the back country than in the city. I'm really good. Out of all the people in the world, could you send someone else? And then something happens that's very, very important for you to see. The Bible says, as soon as he makes that statement, when he says, would you send someone else? The Scripture says, these words, verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Let me teach you something. Uh, people who are critical of the Old Testament say, ah, I read it and it seems like God's mad all the time. I like the New Testament. I like the words written in red. I, I'm a red letter Christian. Don't, don't buy into that. That, that. That's saying that everything Jesus said is more important than everything Paul said. That's not our theology. I'll tell you why. We don't believe Paul said what Paul said. We believe the Holy Spirit gave Paul the words just as the Spirit guided the Christ to say his words. All of it is equal. All of it is inspired and inerrant by God's word. We don't elevate one passage over another. We use passages to interpret one another. And there are plenty of passages that are somewhat obscure, but there are other passages in our lives that explain those obscure passages. And so let me remind you of something here. Did you know that of everything you've ever read in Genesis, and if you've ever read anything in Genesis, listen, I'm going to tell you something. It is Jerry Springer on steroids. I mean, as soon as Adam and Eve fall, it is a teetotal mess. The only person in Genesis that seems to rise above is Joseph. Everybody else messes up in ways that would make most of you blush. And yet, this is the first time in the Bible that it's ever recorded that God is angry at an individual. Even when God told Noah he was going to destroy the, the earth and all of its inhabitants, the Bible says it grieved him. It was done in sorrow over sin. And there are very few times in Scripture where God directs his anger toward an individual servant of his. Now, there are times when he directs his anger toward his people for disobedience. We're going to see that. It will involve a golden calf. Get ready. But here, God is angry at Moses. For what? For committing adultery? Uh, for, for, for chasing a life of illicit drug use? For stealing money? For saying no. For saying no. God takes his yes seriously. Now, at this point, way, in his grace, no sooner has Moses got to this point of availability, believability, inability, availability, God's anger is kindled toward Moses. And then we see, secondly, the support of saying yes to God's call. Look how God deals with this anger. We go from anger to Aaron. Look at verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. 
You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth, and he shall be as God, and you shall be as God to him, and take in your hand this staff, which you shall do the signs. Now, not only did God provide Aaron, look at verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law. Remember, Jethro's got investment here. Moses has one of his daughters and all of his sheep. He says, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro says, go. Go in peace. So God is adding the people Moses needs, and he's releasing from Moses the commitments he has to other people so that he may go. Now, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. Skip to the end of the chapter. Look with me, if you will. Pick up in verse 27. In verse 27, the Bible says, The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went to meet him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Now, there's so much here I don't have time to deal with. I mean, at this point, we have no reason to believe that Moses and Aaron had had interaction for 40 years, and the last time Moses left, he's on the most wanted list of Pharaoh. Now, that Pharaoh has died, and life has moved on. Aaron is a Levite. Obviously, Aaron is the leader of men. Now, it doesn't say that God sent Aaron to say the words and Moses to cheer on. God says, Moses, you're my chosen servant. I'm going to give you the words. You're going to express to Aaron what I want said. And when the moment comes, Aaron will deliver that message. Now, interestingly, Aaron does that initially. But later in the book, we find Moses speaking more and more and more. And so Aaron was a means to an end. It wasn't as if Moses couldn't speak or Moses couldn't be used by God. But God propped up Moses' lack of confidence with another brother to stand in the gap. And there's a New Testament flow there as well. God gave the message to Moses. Moses gives the message to Aaron. Aaron gives the message to the people. God gave the message to the apostles. The apostles give the message that we have in the Bible. The pastor takes the message from the Bible and gives it to the people. The pastor can't create the message. The pastor doesn't inspire the message. The pastor doesn't create doctrine. The pastor is simply a mouthpiece, a messenger of God's Moses. And of course, the mouthpiece of God today is the completed scriptures. So this is a pattern that God establishes. Now, interestingly, as soon as Aaron and Moses meet, look what happens in verse 28. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words of the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs of the sight of the people. And the people believed. And they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that they had seen their affliction and they bowed their heads and they worshiped. So interestingly, All of a sudden, in the middle of his self-doubt and desire not to go, God begins to bring people around Moses to support him. Let me tell you something I've observed. One of God's greatest gifts in our lives is the people he brings to come alongside us to do his will. Never forget them and always seek to bless them. Just, Just right here in the sermon, if you would. Take inventory of the people in your life that come to your mind. Your imagination puts their face in front of you who they are a primary influencer in you being where you are with Christ today. Some of you are new to following Jesus. 
For the first time in a long time, you're engaged in church. You're growing in the faith. When you think about it, people come to your mind. A coworker, a friend, a Sunday school teacher from your childhood, maybe a previous pastor, a neighbor, a family member. And those people, they, they can't force you. They can't manipulate you. The people that really move you aren't legalistic. They aren't judgmental. They don't walk around with their big black Bible and hit you on the head all the time until you conform. That, that's very, very ineffective. At times, it feels good to do it if you have the big black Bible, but it's very ineffective. But there are people in your life that you would say, he or she is part of the reason that I'm walking with the Lord today. Can I just encourage you to let them know that this week? They may be in heaven, and if they are, praise God for them in your prayer time. But if they're alive today, let them know that. You can say something like this. Hey, pastor's preaching through Exodus. We're going to be there for like a decade. We've made it to chapter 4, and he pointed out that Moses didn't do it alone. And I want you to know that wherever I am today in my walk, I didn't get there alone. You were a big reason. You'll never know what that will mean to them in their life. I'll tell you something else. It'll also encourage them to keep doing it in other people's lives, and it will remind you that the greatest list is not the list of people that influenced you. It's being the kind of person that's on other people's list. That's the greatest life. That when they put you in that pine box and that pastor stands over your body, that the chapel, the church, the funeral home, wherever it is, is full of people that say, I know she wasn't perfect. I, I know he wasn't perfect. But I'm going to tell you something. He made my faith stronger. She encouraged me to walk with the Lord. Now, I'd love, I'd love to end there, but there's one thing I want to teach you, and that's the seriousness of answering the call. I promised you years ago that I'd never skip parts of the Bible that I want to skip. There's this random story in chapter 4 that scholars have been scratching their heads over for years. It begins really in verse, I would say somewhere along the lines of verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that they may serve you. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. We know that's going to happen. Verse 24 is the odd story. At a lodging place on the way, so Moses left Midian, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Wait, what now? Hold on. We just worked through this whole call, and now most people believe Moses has fallen ill, and the illness is a result of God's judgment. Now, there's important parts of the language here. The idea of salt carries the idea that God's measuring out judgment, but he left room for grace because when God really wants to do something, he can do it without trying to do it. He can speak it into existence. But the idea from a human perspective is that Moses fell under judgment. And most people believe it would have been some sort of sickness, illness unto death. And it was seen as a judgment of God. Why? What had Moses done? Well, let's read and I'll, I'll explain it. 
At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin. She circumcised her son and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. In other words, God stopped punishing Moses unto death. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. Now, this is one of those parts where you go, okay. I sure am glad I'm with Pastor this morning. If I were reading this alone tomorrow morning, I would not know what to put in my journal. Centered around three sons. The first son is Israel. God says, you go tell him that Israel's my firstborn son. Now, this is beautiful. Sometimes God refers to Israel symbolically as his one firstborn favored son. In antiquity, the oldest son was favored. In the Jewish law, he's actually seen as God's. The rest of the children belong to you, but the first son belongs to God, so couples would have to go make a sacrifice for the first son in order that they may keep him and raise him because he belonged to the Lord. We know that Jesus was dedicated at the temple as the first son of Mary and Joseph as his earthly father, not his biological father, but his earthly father. Jeremiah shows us this kind of language. With weeping, they shall come in, and with pleas of mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water. Jeremiah is talking about the restoration of God of Israel. Straight path in which they shall not summer. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim, that's another word for Israel, is my first born. Hosea 11.1 uses the same language. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Notice, we're all about pronouns now. Notice the first person personal masculine pronoun, I loved him. So God refers to Israel the way a father would refer to his one first favored son. The Bible shows that this is a foreshadowing of a better son coming to save Israel and all that are in the covenant because when Jesus is born and his life is threatened by Herod, Mary and Joseph flee where? To Egypt. And the writer of the Gospels says that is to fulfill Hosea 11.1. Look what the passage says. I'll put it on the screen. Next passage, Matthew 2.15. And remain there until the death of Herod. That's Mary, Joseph, Jesus. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. So just as Israel's coming out of Egypt to be saved, Jesus is coming out of Egypt to do the saving. It's one book. One redemptive plan. And then we get to Pharaoh's son, and Pharaoh's son is threatened. God says, if you will not release my son, eye for eye, I will take the life of your son. Death leads to life. And then we get to Moses' son. And here's what that passage means. In the midst of living as an exile with the Midianites, Moses had disobeyed God. God said back in Genesis 17, Every Hebrew boy must be circumcised as a sign of covenant between me and you. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring. This is given to Abraham. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 
now, God goes on to tell Abraham, just a few verses down, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It was a sin for a Hebrew not to symbolize the covenant that God made with Abraham by refusing circumcision. Now, there's a lot of reasons why. We don't know why. Some argue that uh, the Midianites would have been against it, that Zipporah didn't want to do it. But when Moses fell under the judgment of disobeying God, God brought illness and judgment into him, and Zipporah knew the problem, so she circumcised the boy. And very symbolically and in a very small gesture, the small amount of blood produced by this act, this ceremony of circumcision, is touched to Moses, foreshadowing that the shedding of blood can relent the judgment of God and lead to salvation. What's the point? How do you apply that to your life? God can call you, but you still got to obey. Like, I, I love to celebrate grace. But it doesn't matter what you receive from God in terms of calling. He can encourage you. He can equip you. If there's an area of disobedience in your life, You've got to deal with that because God's going to deal with it. So, so, for example, if you feel God moving in your life every time you come to church here, we rejoice in that. But if you leave here and live with your girlfriend, God's not going to ignore that. God's going to deal with that sin one way or the other, and there will be measures of his grace you'll not experience until you repent of that. You can serve on the parking team and teach a small group and give your 10%. But if you secretly nurse a porn addiction and don't seek any repentance and turn from that and sorrow over it, I'm not asking you to defeat it alone. I'm not asking you to declare that you and your own power can be released from the temptation of lust. It's something that most men deal with all of their life, and men are not alone in dealing with it. I'm telling you that if you nurse that and you put that aside and you keep that secret, it may be a secret from those around you who you're scared to death that they may find out. It is no secret from God. And by God's grace, he will discipline you. So, so my point is, is that we don't live in fear, but we recognize God's going to do what he's going to do. Remember what Mordecai said to Esther? Esther's got to risk her life. And you know what Mordecai said? Esther, if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will rise up for the Jews from another place. In other words, he says, Esther, God's going to do what he's going to do. He's going to save his people. But if you keep silent, you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I love the depth there. He says, God's going to do what he's going to do. He wants to use you. He does not have to use you. He'll use someone else if you stand in the shadows of doubt or sin. In 1939, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian who stood against the Nazis, stepped off a cruise ship into America safe from Adolf Hitler. He says later, within hours of walking the streets of New York, he knew he had made a mistake. How could he help rebuild the confessing church of Germany that stood against the Nazis if he was in America? He went back to Germany and joined a group of pastors who were trying to kill Hitler. Oftentimes, we depict pastors as these loving, kind, shepherding people, and we should. But sometimes, shepherds got to kill a wolf. They decided to attempt an assassination on Hitler. Their plan was found out. He was arrested. 
and hung in 1945. All he had to do was stay in New York. But God did not call him to the easy route. What is he calling you to do? Put your yes on the table.